Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Alex Lynch, and this is Out of Character, a podcast about sketch and character comedy. Oh, you're not a wizard. No, I say I am. I've got a beard. Oh, yeah, he's right. He does have a beard, actually. In this show, I chat to writers and performers from the world of sketch and character comedy. And I sort of couldn't believe what I was seeing. Like, I couldn't believe anything could be that good. That moment of uh, self-hatred uh, is is your rehearsal. That's what <laughs> that's, you've been doing it your whole life. Out of Character, with me, Alex Lynch. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. It's Thursday night. It's about 18 minutes past seven. It's July the 3rd, 1983. The smell of late teas are wafting in through the open window. The kids on the street are playing Kerber with World Cup 86 footballs that are on sale at the garage for half price. And this episode of Top of the Pops is interesting. Not brilliant. Possibly cat shit in places, but interesting nonetheless. Hey, up, pew pop craze youngsters. My name's Al Needham. Welcome to the final part of chart music number 59. Me, Taylor Parks and Neil Kulkarnay are going to bring this baby home. these fox people but they certainly go in for suggestive titles at 23 sly fox and let's go all the way janice on her own again speculates on the overall foxiness of this week's chart and tells us that the next single sounds a bit fruity as well. It's Let's Go All The Way by Sly Fox. Formed in New York in 1985, Sly Fox were an interracial duo consisting of Michael Camacho, a former a cappella singer who'd been a member of the main ingredient in the early 80s and was currently being advised by David Bower, and Gary Mudbone Cooper, a former member of Parliament Funkadelic, who co-wrote I'd Rather Be With You and played drums on George Clinton's Atomic Dog. This is their debut single, which came out in May on both sides of the Atlantic. 
While it was doing fuck all over there, it entered our charts at number 79 and took a month to get up to number 39. It jumped nine places the week after that to number 30, and this week it's up another seven places to number 23. Reason enough for Capitol Records to shove them into a plane and get them into the top of the pop studio. First thing I've got to do is correct Janice, uh, because the song's obviously not about shagging. It's essentially another way of saying, go for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I wouldn't take from most people. But Sly Fox, Mm. I'm listening. (laughs) Yes, definitely. I mean, sometimes it can be a a really trepidatious thing revisiting songs that you know back in the day you loved on on chart music because you're always worried that it's not going to stand up. And I I remember when when Mm. I saw that this was on this episode, I remembered that I I was freaking obsessed with the song and was intensely gratified on playing this episode to realise I still love it i mean whereas with most of the stuff on this episode my my shitty laptop speakers were enough i did have to hook this up to Mm. my stereo and play it loud and and its appeal in 86 i think is is quite simple because to paraphrase q-tip all pop fans um they love their beats hard like two-day-old shit as he said i I love this at the Mm. time I suspect because partly it touches on a very specific contact high that pop and rock have sporadically touched on ever since the dawn of rock and roll, really. The power of a beat. The beat here is kind of the hook. And in 86, when studio wizardry seemed mainly focused on kind of deodorizing drums to the point of this airy bigness, the beat in Let's Go All The Way, it hits you hard. You know, it hits you in the chest. It hits with the same sort of startling heaviness as other records from this period that also leapt out of the pile for me, like like Janet's Nasty, or even Falco's Amadeus, yeah. or Art of Noises Close to mm. the Edit, or Cameo's Word Up, or Slime Robbie's Boots. We've said already in 86, a lot of us are sent backwards, and we're listening to The Meters and Zeppelin and things like that. And, and if you're listening to drums yeah. like that and then listening to stuff in 86, you, you're not going to get pleased coming back to the present and just not feeling no. that anymore. You search for it, you're greedy for it wherever you find it. You know, Pet Shop Boys, West End Girls had also tickled my my sort of big beat thirst if you like in a way that mm. pet shop boys subsequent work never would and in so many ways um you know what we see on this particular episode of top of the pop seems so behind the times or at least is barely preparing us for a world in which you know within a year we're gonna have rebel without a pause and follow the leader in our ears but this mm. record it had that mid-range snare hit just punches you in the chest combined with this real I think Sly Fox, like all the best people at this period, were looking back. It's got a real 60s kind of psychedelic melody. I can't have been the only kid at the time occasionally singing um, Semolina Pilchard climbing up the Eiffel Tower to yeah. this. You know, it's got yeah, that yeah, Iron yeah. the Walrus thing massively in these droning chords. Deliberately so, apparently. Ah, right, I see. I mean, much as Prince was yeah. touching back on the 60s to re-inject contemporary pop with some oomph and oddness, it seemed Sly Fox were doing the same. And it's quite a monomaniacal doomy record in a way. It's like a pop version of Eno's Baby on Fire sometimes. <laughs> and when I check the mm. lyrics in Smash Hits... I loved it even more. The sort of lines... Yeah. I mean, it, you've said, Al, that kind of let's go all the way could be interpreted as a kind of positive statement. It's actually really quite a dark, doomy record lyrically, I think. You know, sitting with a thinker, trying mm. to work it out. Presidential party, no one wants to dance. And all a California dream is mm. sinking in the sand. There's an almost 
steely dan darkness to the words here which i think gives real impetus to the message it's a kind of apocalypse now let's get fucking wild kind of message with no ambition yeah. or hope or trajectory to it and you yeah. know i'm living in new york it's like an apple core apple core <laughs> yeah. that's my favorite bit in the yeah, yeah. when he goes apple core <laughs> I would have been, uh, yeah. I mean, I would have been utterly delighted to have seen them on top of the pops because I think by this point I'd have got tired of the kind of the amazing video because I really liked the video for this song as well. Um, mm. But I remember feeling proud in a way that you know, much as sort of it's it's weird. You can be proud to be British because Sparks made it. Over here. I was kind of proud that it was a big yeah. hit over here, and and you know, this mm. performance they seem pleased to be here unlike the house martins yes. there's no kind of residual snottiness towards the audience um and in all the flim flam and fold rule involved in pop in 1986 there's something pure about the response to this just kids going mad for a beat i mean by 1986 standards the kids are going fucking berserk over this aren't they yeah. i mean at the slightest hint of a bit of dancing off them they start screaming as if they're expecting them to you know they're going to start stripping at any yeah, moment yeah. much bigger names than sly fox get barely no reaction you know on, on this episode yeah. but sly fox are the absolute highlight of the show they look great as well i mean it's only now of course you know at the time i wouldn't have known perhaps who gary mudbone cooper was and just how many fucking no. amazing records he appeared on you know he don't mm. forget beyond all the p-funk and, and bootsy stuff that he was on he was also on sly and robbie's amazing rhythm killers album he was on digital undergrounds the body right. hat syndrome you know Ooh. I'd actually put him in a weird way alongside people like Bill Laswell and those kind of post-punk New York City funk artists. And, and Michael Camancho mm. looks great as well. He's like, um, he's like yes. Roland Orzabel's handsome twin brother. But I would totally <laughs> eat the fuck out of a sandwich made by Sly Fox. I, I love this record. Oh, yeah. I actually shouted wicked yeah. when this came on. <laughs> I was watching this episode for the first time. Cheered almost as wildly as the Top of the Pops audience, which... I love the fact that they've still got the House Martin scarves on. <laughs> so it's mm. like, in, in your mind, you can imagine it's a load of House Martins fans who go, wait a minute, this is much better. Because <laughs> yeah. it is. Especially at the start when Sly Fox are clapping their hands over their heads and they slowly yes. turn around mm. to face them. Which surely... Yeah, getting m- the party started. But that must have been a disappointment on at least one level. from the third round but no no here we go come on lads take your coats off or you won't feel the benefits (laughs) and it's really weird how they've got they've got all this bloody neon crap lying about and you know them horrible lights and everything and they've perched themselves right in the corner of the stage and they hardly move from it yeah and this is the kind of song where you expect them to be just marching right across from one end of the stage to the other like rappers. <laughs> but no, they hold their spot. Well, they're just commanding the stage with sheer force of personality and uh, mm. and simple charisma, isn't it? Yeah. You can't take your eyes off it. Mullet versus high top fade in the World Series <laughs> of mid-80s hairstyles. I love this record <laughs> so much. Like partly just because it's, such an incredibly unlikely flower to find growing in the filth of this appalling time and place. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But Mm. it's not the work of, like, brave outsiders forcing their way in. Do you know what I mean? This seed has been planted in exactly the same soil as all those mid-'80s records that everyone hates, you know, and watered with cocaine piss in exactly the same way but it's come up 
big and bright and and beautifully nonsensical. It sounds like the the most unlikely hybrid of brutalist, gimmicky, mock futurist seventies British bubblegum with a mm. uh, sort of cokey, rolled sleeve brain sludge of eighties American major label bilge, and that. In a way that, that I mean, that's obviously not what it is. It's not coming from that background, but that's what it sounds like. And the chance effect uh, created by whatever they were trying to do is so fantastic. I can't imagine anyone disliking this record. It's one of those records. I can't imagine anyone going, "Oh well, no, not this." I know they exist, but you know, you know. Well. I was one of them, I'm, sure, I'm afraid. I'm sure. For the crappiest reason ever. Right? I listen to this now and I go, yeah, this is fucking properly good. Mm. But I gave Sly Fox the shortest of shrift at the time because this was round about the time I was absolutely frothing over Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, and I'd see yeah, their name yeah. in the papers or whatever and just jump up and go, oh, it's them. <laughs> I- I'm even more fucked off nowadays about Sly and the Family Drone. Mm, fuck those guys. I've, I've not heard one note by them, but I fucking hate them. It's like, how fucking dare you? I refuse to go near them mm. precisely for the same reasons, Al. But yes, you're right. The two biggest reactions we've had in this episode are this and Happy Hour... Two completely different singles, but it just demonstrates that in 1986, people are absolutely gagging for something that sounds new, or at least different. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, there's obviously something about this record that smells slightly bad, if you want to be cynical about it. Mm. I mean, you know that everyone involved with this had what they would have called careers in the music industry. You know what I mean? It's, It's not an outsider record. And... You know, for all the craziness, I mean, you can imagine how great this chorus must have sounded after free basing. Yes. (laughs) If you want to be really cynical, you could say that this record, ironically enough, is like uh, an inverted mullet. Like it's party up front, business at the back. Mm. Um, It's not a field recording of wild men at large. Do you know what I mean? It's clearly come from a recognisable place, which is America in 1986, where the 70s haven't so much ended as evolved. Yeah. You know, so much British stuff from this time is still reacting against the 70s, even mainstream stuff. Mm. Uh, Even as 1990 is closer than 1979, still. Whereas Sly Fox, they're kind of as 80s as you can possibly get. Yeah. Um, But it's, in a way, it's more like a a slow, natural development out of the 70s, mm. you know. Um, it's because the American music business was too big and sprawling for sharp handbrake turns, and they never had an effective year zero, you know, like we pretended to do with punk. So you still got dinosaurs, but evolving into slightly different looking dinosaurs mm. and occasionally that just seemed like an openness in the sense of doors being left unlocked do you know what i mean yeah and things could get through so you take that and you combine it with what sounds like an attempt to assimilate and acknowledge hip-hop and sort of electro and you know prince type pop funk gary mudbone cooper's funk credentials unquestionable mm. um and you end up with this weird and glorious mess you know when yeah, you've got this yeah. this 
brutal simplification. Um, you got like a squeaking, groaning, widdly heavy metal guitar, like like the theme tune to Gazetta Football Italia. Yes, um, <laughs> and and the preposterous lyrics and that boldness and that gleeful lack of taste, and you end up with something that's absolutely fabulous. It's like mm, yeah, steamy yeah. AOR that's genuinely a bit funky wrapped around pure bubblegum. Yeah, that lack of taste is key. It it kind it, it gives you its joys generously this record, you know? And and in 86 what we were looking for if you were in any way interested in good pop was what was because what what we were being given was very measured, polite and tasteful pop music mm. in the main from the mainstream. What we were looking for for our thrills. I mean, for starters we were looking for thrills. That seemed to have been forgotten. Yeah. yeah. What we were looking for was things that were unslick in a way. And that's why the House Martins, you know, floated my boat in this period. They were unslick. What we were looking for, in a sense, was the immature, um, rather than, you know, that you know that if you put this record on now, I mean, I know most kids wouldn't know it, but they'd be stomping to it within about 30 seconds. I mean, little kids here. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. That's what we're after. That's what I was after, yes. certainly in 86. Something unslick, something immature, rather than this kind of measured, polite, tasteful stuff yeah. that was being doled down to us by Pop's bigger names, yeah. if you like. This is essentially the non-white American we will rock you, isn't it? well that's i mean and that's perhaps why on the on the 12 inch you know they they interpolate bits of we will rock Uh, you into the remix um but yeah because i mean there's a there's a beat matching thing going on there but yeah it 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 is very much like that it's a record to stomp to Mm. And whereas the vast majority of the charts seem to be, it, it, it seemed to be sort of trying to grow up a little bit and be mm. mature and be, and, and fuck that. That's always usually anathema to, to great pop happening. This is just, you know, in this episode in particular, remember when we were, um, me, Taylor and you were doing this episode and Thin Lizzy came on yes. after James Galway and it was, it was like, yes, <laughs> this is that moment in this episode. Yeah. Absolutely. They're, they're quite lovable characters as well, don't you think? Like They're like yeah. a pair of buddy-buddy cops in yes. a lightweight <laughs> yeah. 80s comedy action thriller. They're like, uh, you know, Jelinski and Kronk. <laughs> it's like, hey, Kronk, what's the matter with you, dude? We've only got 15 <laughs> hours to stop McFadden and you're drinking a pink cocktail in Ray-Bans and a Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. And he's just, Hey, man, there's always time to party. <laughs> Car speeds <laughs> off. Huey Lewis track kicks in. But I'm I'm glad that we got this studio performance rather than yeah. the video, partly because it means we get to see them having the time of their lives, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. doing kung fu moves and drops <laughs> yeah. and leaps and overhead hand claps, beckoning fingers yeah. and, uh, and massive genuine smiles because they're not dumb. And they're making the most of this while it lasts. Uh, mm, yeah, but also yeah. because the video is a massive seizure risk, which just would not be allowed on television. <laughs> anyway, now, it's the flashing, strobing effects all the way through. You've got these two kids who are obviously representations of Sly and Fox uh, unloading a, a shopping trolley full of toy guns and tanks and fighter jets and... Uh, smashing them all up with hammers, which I think might be trying to put across a message of some sort. (laughs) 
And then at the end, having destroyed all these toy weapons, the two little kids uh, pick up a big globe and walk away with it, mm. which I think is trying to say that small children are thieves who yes. take without giving and, <laughs> and are a danger to the world. Yeah, they want the fucking horses tanning. Yeah. Give them a spell on war orphan farm, that'll sort them out. <laughs> but I couldn't tell for sure because... Yeah, I had my eyes covered for most of the video because it's like being trapped in mortar fire. Mm. It's, uh, I mean, it sort of suits the unhinged attack of yeah. the record, yeah, it does. but it's impossible to look at. And I really didn't want to lose consciousness, uh, <laughs> perhaps for the last time, with uh, Michael Camacho and Gary Mudbone Cooper singed onto my retinas, much as I love them, you know, wouldn't have been a privilege. We go mental for black Latino double acts, don't we? Because this is essentially Charles and Eddie, the the long coat years. (laughs) It's about time we had another one. In fairness, I can see why Sly Fox will want it wonders. Because I went and listened to their album Mm, uh, with its 1986 Forever cover, uh, knowing full well that it was going to let me down, you know. Mm -hmm. But research is research. And, uh, I mean, it wouldn't be outrageously unfair to say that Let's Go All The Way is the best track on the album. Um, uh, Or that the rest of it is to 1986 what the bleating of livestock and the low moans of plague victims was to 1351. Um, But I will say it's better than that, and it's slightly better than I expected, even though it's not substantially different from what I expected. Um... It's a sort of a slick, lightweight 80s pop funk record. It's like a Pointer Sisters album mm. crushed in Miami Vice. Um, but, mm. and I, but I wish I hadn't bothered to find that out in a way. In the same way that I've never, like consciously never listened to any other song by that inexplicable 90s duo, Roy Vadas, other than Fragments of Life. Um, because I, I know what would happen if I did. You know, uh, but you can't blame Sly Fox for the immutable laws of pop. You know, and 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 the album does reveal Gary Mudbone Cooper as the undisputed creative engine room of mm. Sly Fox. He writes or co-writes uh, six of the eight tracks, including this one. Uh, Michael Camacho supplies only the uh, the the slightly mawkish "Won't Let You Go" brackets a wedding song. Um, <laughs> and and the 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 flop follow up to this uh, stay true, which is just clearly a bone thrown in his direction in the interests of band politics, which you know would prove a waste of time. Uh, I mean, as one hit wonder follow ups go, uh, it's as predictable as this is surprising, you know. Mm. But not absolutely everything in life can be perfect, even when Sly Fox are involved. The thing is with Camacho, he's it's essentially there to be a looker, I think. He's got that same sort of beefy hunkiness as... Um, I'm thinking of the opening titles to Cagney and Lacey and um, the mm. cop that Sharon Glass occasionally cops off with. He's got that similar look to him, but with darker, longer hair. Um, he's essentially there to be... Not eye candy as such, but the the star, not the star of the show, but Mudbone's amazing in this performance, I think. Um, yeah. You know... Yeah. Very much reminds me of the film Hollywood Shuffle for some reason. Um, right. Like he could have appeared in that. Mm. I think what Taylor's identified 
that's most important to the success of this record and why this performance is so nice is that Sly Fox are not careerist about this. They know absolutely this is going to be perhaps a flash in the pan. And yeah. they are just having fun with it. There's not a hint of a future mapped out for them or anything like that. And, and they're just mm. loving it. And that's, what's, that's what makes it the absolute highlight of this show. Yeah. If Little and Large did Sly Fox, who would be who? <laughs> that's, this, is, this is going to be a benchmark question from here on in. They both love blacking up, though, don't they? So yeah. There's only one way to find out. Raise Eddie Large from the dead <laughs> and ask him to get on with yeah. it. At the end of the day, whatever else anyone might say about Sly Fox, you have to admit that they are humanity's greatest heroes. Um, or at the very least, that they were capable of doing something that would otherwise have seemed impossible. They looked at 1986 and they said, let's not escape this. Let's be mm. in this and make yes. it work. Mm. You know, yes. it's like one of them is swinging by his fingers from the lower loop of the eight, and the other one is is lazing in the upper loop like a, a showgirl reclining <laughs> in a crescent moon. Uh, they didn't want to be anywhere else, and mm. uh, luckily for them, they never would be. <laughs> the following week, let's go all the way, soared 17 places to number six, and a week later got to number three, dropping one place to number four the week after, before nipping back up to three for one more week the week after that. Its success in Britain inspired the record company to put the single out again in America, and this time it got to number seven. But their follow-up and subsequent releases all failed to chart and they never darkened the UK charts ever again, splitting up in 1988. Cooper went on to work with Prince, The Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan and Roy Ayers, to name but a few, while Camacho is currently running a jazz bar in New York. Let's go all the way Welcome to All Rather Mysterious, the podcast that aims to unlock the mysteries of the past with the key of fact. My name is John Rain. My name is Eleanor Morton. My name is David Reed. Please join us as we present to you mysteries that have baffled the world. You had any noises? What about um, a door creaking? Uh, no, uh, you don't have to do that. That weird kadook that yeah, lights well, going off makes for some reason in film. <laughs> All Rather Mysterious. Wham! 
Janice, bowing in the direction of Sly Fox and ruining the fact that the only person who ever dances with her at clubs is people like Simon Bates, runs down the top ten and then introduces Where Did Your Heart Go by Wham! Formed in Bushy from the Ashes of the Executive, a school scar band, Wham! or fucking Wham! <laughs> this is the culmination of their split-up, which was announced by George Michael on the LWT show Aspel and Company on March the 1st, and part of a terminal splurge, which included the greatest hits LP, The Final, which came out last week, a farewell gig at Wembley Stadium last Saturday, and the kiss-off single, The Edge of Heaven, which crashed into the chart at number... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. But two a fortnight ago and deposed Spirit in the Sky by Doctor and the Medics last week. This, however, is a recording of a performance they did last week in the Top of the Pop studio. It's a cover of the 1981 Was Not Was single, which failed to chart here, and is a track on the limited edition 7-inch double pack which CBS has put out in one last attempt to grab some more money off George and Andrew. Before we get stuck into Wham Chaps, the, the, the top ten, I've got to say, it's a joyous return of sorts to the shitty band picks of old, isn't it? <laughs> the male half of Bugs Fizz are cropped out of shot, uh, Mike Nolan completely, and the, the photo of New Shoes looks rather like the cover of a video called Self-Defence Techniques Against People Who Look Like Brian May. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that's, that comes to mind when uh, I Can't Wait arises in the conversation is it's one of the few singles that my sister owned. Oh, yeah. She was just not into record owning. She'd, she'd get tapes off boyfriends and stuff. Right. I've, I think her record collection consists of the 12-inch version of I Can't Wait and a copy of um, Legend by Bob Molly and the Wailers, <sighs> where she's written Trey Dash Lobs 
uh, that was her mate, Lorraine, and she'd written blood clot <laughs> underneath it. On, on Bob Marley's forehead, Trey Lobb's blood clot. She started using that word a lot in her early teens. I remember one night she got into an argument with my dad about her smoking or staying out late, and mm. she just said, Sure up, Dad, you blood clot. But <laughs> <laughs> Dad didn't understand a fucking word she was saying. So he picked her up and chucked her in the bath and turned the cold water tap on her. Uh. So, why are I doing this? Well, yeah, Neil and I have both expressed our admiration for and appreciation of George Michael previously. Yes, um, very much so. But that admiration and appreciation doesn't obscure the fact that over the years he did sing on an awful lot of slop. Um, mm. It was just slop that made you think, yeah, I'm not into this one, rather than mm. slop that made mm. you think, you know, I'd like to boil this person. Um, <laughs> yes. And although this isn't the A-side, and it's just a courtesy from Top of the Pops to say, you know, hey, do a B-side too, mm. it's still a really strange situation. Like, wham, bowing out on Top of the Pops with a woozy cover of a was-not-was was song. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's mental, isn't who it? Who needs that? I mean... Was Not Was are a bit of a blank space to me. I just associate them with amusing song titles and sort of Mm. competent producer music, you know. And I wasn't really familiar with their moody, quasi-Latin soul stuff. Um, Mm. In fact, there's a clip on YouTube of Was Not Was doing this song live on MTV, which is actually sort of really good if you like Mm, that kind mm. of thing. It's very well played, very well sung, very gritty and musical, but a bit self-consciously so in that 80s style. It's not really somewhere I want to spend too much time just in case Mm. it's contagious. But the thing is that that was so much better than this and Wham! deserve a better send-off than a second-rate cover version. You know, yeah. it's just a real fizzling out, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah. This it's isn't a- wham, it's splat. <laughs> yeah. I was scratching my head about this, and if I was a wham fan, I would be making that Marge Simpson growling sound. <laughs> this does not bode well for George Michael's forthcoming solo career, but it's slated to be the final wham single in America, so this could be something they could, you know, get in the can and use in the future. And it, it comes off as if Top of the Pops is expecting an, a really long run at number one for Edge of Heaven. So they want to get something else in the can. So they've done a bit of a town called Malice, precious double shift. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. It's really odd when you go back and dig through the charts and realise this only went straight in at number two. Yeah. To Doctor and the fucking Medics. <laughs> yeah, that is mad. That is mad. Yeah. When you're a kid becoming a teenager, pop plays odd tricks with time and, and your memory. Mm. I mean, in 86, it seemed an age ago when I had, you know, laughed at my sister and her friends doing routines to young guns and stuff in our living room. Mm. And clearly by the looks of George and Andrew here, it's been a long road to this kind of fizzled out point. You could say George is sort of road testing his solo look here. Um, yes, he is. He's a lot less orange, seemingly. He's a bit darker. Yes. Towards the kind of leather look that he does with, with Faye. He's got the same jacket on, hasn't he? He has. BSA Rocker's Revenge jacket. With 10 years before his masterpiece, Fast Love. Yeah. yeah. But he's already going to start writing more interesting songs, like A Different Corner. I'm getting obsessed mm. with that song. But you yeah. can already tell in this performance, and perhaps with this choice of song, that he doesn't 
really care about sustaining Wham anymore. No. I mean, even Edge of Heaven, for me, feels like a forced Wham number. Like, like you know, the mm. record company wanted another Wham hit. And for George at this point, I just, you know, I think he's realising he cannot hit out like that. But he's not interested. Edge of Heaven... Yeah doesn't have the joy of those early Wham! singles. It seems like a more a by-rote kind yeah, of thing, you know, that yeah. he, he churned out. Um, so, you know, this cover and this performance, everyone on that stage looks like they're just going through the motions. Um, yeah. Everybody. I mean, even, you know, Andrew can't convincingly <laughs> seem part of this record, and nor can George, no. and nor can anybody, even the session men that they're surrounded with. No. Um, it all feels like a really damp fizzling out for, for, which is shocking because I mean, Wham yeah. were just so enormous. Yeah, I mean, um, this song sounds and and looks on this episode of Top of the Pops like something you might see on Italian television on a Saturday night yeah. <laughs> before the housewife strippers come back on again. Well, if you listen to this a few times, you do sort of sink into the lushness of it a bit. I mean, mm. pleasantly enough, but to no great effect because it does seem very insubstantial. I mean, part of the problem, this clip lasts three and a half minutes and it feels like it's over in a flash because a track like this Mm. only makes sense over the full five minutes because it's not pop in that sense it's a it's a slow boat out on the lake you know and after Mm. five minutes you feel a bit like you've been somewhere with it but three minutes isn't long enough to establish the mood uh and get you used to it so it's it's just like a cloud that passes over you know, and then you forget it, yeah. you know. It, it, in This song does give George the chance to sing lines like, I spend my nights down on the wharf um, and we'll <laughs> share a rusty can of corn. Okay. Uh, but unfortunately, he just delivers them with the same unsmiling, moody intensity as everything mm. else around mm. this time. It's one very valid criticism of George, I think, is his inflexibility and lack of subtlety as an interpreter of other people's mm. songs. He never does a good job on, on any cover versions. Um, and I do also have an instinctive aversion to British people singing down in Mexico. Mm. Because although Mexico <laughs> is down from yeah. here, it's really, it's more across, isn't yes. it? You know. <laughs> yeah, diagonal in Mexico. <laughs> this is Andrew Ridgely's last performance on Top of the Pops. It, it could have built his part up a bit on this, I think. How? I don't know. <laughs> Give him some maracas or something. And a bit a big leather Mexican hat. <laughs> but this is as good an explanation as any of why Wham split up. Yeah. Because it makes no sense as a Wham mm. performance. It's weakened... No by the presence of an entity called Wham. Mm. Like, far worse than if this was the same record, but only George Michael. I mean, there's always that temptation. When the leader of a band splits the band up Mm. and says, well, I need to grow as an artist, Mm. um, and all that stuff, you know, oh, we should bow out while we're at the top. Part of you always thinks, really, it's not just because you want the spotlight for yourself or Mm. more of the money, you know, but because lots of bands grow and develop and go through phases without the rest of the group being dumped on their ass, you mm. know. And uh, it's not like the mm. Beatles split up in 1964. They go, oh, we just we think our fans should just be able to have the memory of I want to hold your hand. And, mm. you know, that was what we were really all about. It doesn't work like that. But yeah. 
here, in a way, you can't help thinking, hang on, all you're doing here is jettisoning Ridgely, mm. who doesn't do anything anyway, yeah. and he's your best mate. Is this really necessary? It's not like Paul Weller going... I want to play soul and funk music, but I've got a rhythm section that yeah. sounds like an umpar band. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it does make sense. It was necessary. Yeah. Because Wham! really was about two very young lads leaping about yes. and having fun. Yeah. And yeah, it yeah. should have been left to be just that. And it just feels right in a really big and unignorable way. And this feels wrong in a really big and unignorable mm. way. Mm. And ultimately, if you are Andrew Ridgely, you have to take what you're given. And you need to remember why you own a house and a car mm. and accept that <laughs> what you were part of was far bigger than you mm. and when it's over so is the relevant portion of your life and you i know. think he knew that everybody was aware yeah from a very early period in wham's career that you know one person was carrying the potatoes yeah oh yeah and then the, the clearest confirmation <laughs> of this is how little there is to say about this performance you know like how mm. poorly this kind of sophisticated seriousness suits them and mm. how the presence of mm. of andy and the band really does detract from what george is going for which is an intense uh spotlit one-on-one performance of the song which not only doesn't need a, a, a goofy foil uh pretending to play the guitar it's it's asking repeatedly not to have one there you know mm. and Although George was a, a, mm. an admirably loyal and very decent man, he was also sufficiently driven that he knows he's going to have to address this, like it or mm. not, you know. He's good enough and he's smart enough and he's in close enough contact with his own music and what it says it needs and doesn't need that he's mm. going to listen. So it's inescapable. Um, and sorry, but it's time to take that baggy tartan suit to age concern uh, and prop that black and white strat up against the wall and remember that ultimately you are Andrew Ridgely. Mm. I think in 86, were I a Wham fan, you know, I'd have felt cheated somewhat by yes. this performance. This should be poignant. You know, I, I keep thinking Al, about um, when, when um, I did the episode with Sarah from 2000 and we were talking about the last sort of Take That performance. Yes. And no matter what you think about Take That, you know, that was kind of moving. You could tell that they knew it was going to be their last, mm. you know, show together, if you like, yeah. on Top of the Pops. And it was kind of moving. And they did another crappy cover version as well. Yeah, but there's none of that here. It, this, from yeah. start to finish, just feels like contractual obligation that seems to be mm. all that's going on here so what would have been the perfect one farewell single then they should have done a mega mix medley of all of that yes <laughs> george michael and andrew ridgely have done a round of interviews round about this time mm. and you know george michael's made it clear that no andrew ridgely no wham so every bit of success and money that Andrew Ridgely's pulled down since 1982 has essentially been his finder's fee from George Michael, isn't it? Yeah, it is his finder's fee, but you can't begrudge him. You can't begrudge no. him exactly. And, and uh, you know, although I felt as a kid that loads of people were trying to foster a kind of hostility to Andrew Ridgely, oh, he's, you know, yeah. he, he, he's getting away with it. I, I never yeah. begrudged him anything. Wham were the look of those young young blokes you know they were yeah. together and the essential 
special thing about one for me as a pop kid were, were the videos. And Andrew yeah. was a vital part of that, absolutely vital. So, yeah, he might not have been the greatest musician or the uh, contributor songwriter-wise, but I never begrudged him that. And I don't think many people did beyond the confines of the music press, to be honest with mm. you. There isn't a lot more to say about this because it's like, I think it's only fair to save the Big Wham discussion for the Big Wham single. And, you know, they'll be back. Mm. Mm. They'll be back. This is a really sad fizzling out for one of the biggest bands of the 80s in the UK. Televisually, I mean, this recording was made three days before they filled Wembley Stadium. So, you know, let's not feel too sorry for them. Mm. They obviously thought Edge of Heaven is going to be number one for ages. And uh, no, didn't turn out that way, did it? The fact that Edge of Heaven is only number one for, for two weeks, which, can, you know, for Wham is comparatively not that long. I mean, it just reveals that, yeah, they are now down to their fan base. They're not reeling anyone else in. Um, and, you know, the, the sort of the, the sort of weight of popular will, if you like, isn't with them. They're just the, the people who are going to Wembley Stadium get a good farewell to Wham, I guess. But for Wham fans sat at home who might have loved them from the early 80s and might still love them, this is a pretty yeah. piss poor way to bow out. And let's not forget that Top of the Pops is the thing that made Wham. Yeah. Getting him in at the last minute when someone dropped out so yeah. they could do Young Guns Go For It. Well, I, I mean, I don't begrudge George. I can understand why George at this point is just fucking pig sick of the whole thing and wants done. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, but you know, I, I, I don't know why Top of the Pops are showing this if they knew this was going to be the last ever sort of thing that whereby that they'd have been better off um, mm. re-rotating the clip of them doing the A-side. Even though the A-side itself, yeah. it's a simulacra of a Wham! single. It's, it's, it's a simulation of what made them good. It doesn't feel genuine. It already feels at this point mm. that everyone involved has simply moved on. So the following week, the edge of heaven dropped down to number two, usurped from its place on the summit of Pop Mountain by Popper Don't Preach by Madonna. Oh, fucking hell, lads, we avoided Madonna. (laughs) Yes. And over in America, Where Did Your Heart Go? only got to number 50 on the Billboard chart. After taking the rest of the year off releasing-wise, Michael roared back in January of 1987 when I knew you were waiting for me. His duet with Aretha Franklin entered the chart at number two and spent two weeks at number one and then scored a number three hit with I Want Your Sex and number two with Faith. While Ridgely had to wait until 1990 for his only bit of chart success when Shake got to number 58 for two weeks in March of that year. And at least he can think to himself, well, I've got to see China. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is presenting next week's Top of the Pops. This is Mark. It's his birthday. Happy birthday to you. And uh, we'll leave you with the art of noise. We'll all say goodbye. Doodaloo. Bye. Attacking to myself. Look, I must have a star on my door. Or better still. A door? A door? A door? Swing doors, huh? Okay, doors. Swing. We cut back to Janice standing behind Claire and friends with House Martin scarves draped around their necks. 
She warns us that Pig Wanker General is in full control next week, before informing us that one of the boys in a white baseball cap is called Mark, and it's his birthday today, before tickling him. Oh, bless. Auntie Janice. Yeah, it's sweet that moment, isn't it? Yeah, I'd love to have Janice Long as an auntie. She'd be fucking great. Oh, Auntie Janice, tell us about Echo and the Bunny Men again. Yeah, but that might mean that Keith Chegrin was your dad. True. <laughs> That's not a price worth paying. <laughs> fucking anyone else tickling anybody on top of the pops wouldn't yes. be as nice as this. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. no, it really wouldn't. <laughs> well, she signs off with Paranormia by Max Headroom with The Art of Noise. Born in front of a very early CGI background in April of 1985, Max Headroom was billed as the first computer-generated TV personality, although in actual fact he was the American-born actor Matt Frewer, caked in fiberglass and foam. He was created by a team of directors who had already done animated videos for Accidents Will Happen by Elvis Costello and Genius of Love by the Tom Tom Club, one of whom was Chaz Jankel's sister, and was the star of the Channel 4 TV movie Max Headroom, 20 Minutes into the Future, which was a precursor to his series where he introduced assorted pop videos of the near past and present. The show was such a success that it doubled Channel 4's viewing figures in that time slot. That was six people then. (laughs) He was quickly picked up on by both the American cable station Cinemax and MTV. And a second and third series was commissioned by the Yanks, with Uslock getting it six months later, leading him to become the face of the ill-fated New Coke on adverts in America at the beginning of the year. So, while we wait for Channel 4 to get round to broadcasting the second series later this month, this is his latest project, a collaboration with The Art of Noise, who were last in the charts when they linked up with Dwayne Eddy for a remake of Peter Gunn, which got to number 8 this April. This single entered the top 40 at number 38 last week, and this week it's up 12 places to number 26, and here is the video to take us out. How did you get on with Max Adroom, chaps? Because yes. you're a different age group. No. Mm. That joke got unfunny really quickly. Mm. <laughs> as, a, as a pop kid, of course, you're just hungry for any chance to watch videos, music yes. videos. I mean, didn't have MTV and, and, you know, any show that had music videos in it, even fucking, you know, No Limits and stuff like that, mm. I'd end up watching. Yeah. Um, but... I was only in it for the videos, and in terms of that show, I I kind of my memory places it firmly in that sort of strandest Channel Four shows, where where the technical oddity of it, in a sense, was the hook. Mm. And once you've done that and seen it, there's very little room for it to develop as such. I mean, I'm I'm very much reminded of Star Test, and and much later on, Snog Marry Avoid. But with those Mm. shows, because a human component was part of it, they remained watchable. Max Headroom didn't really have that; remained too cold and too much of a kind of demonstration demonstration of video technology rather than actual entertainment if you like so in other words he was a colossal disappointment <laughs> well that's it isn't it once you've heard that once they didn't exactly put any interesting spins on it so yeah it was just a load of fart arsing getting in the way of me watching pop videos yeah yeah I mean, the only one good thing I ever saw on Max Headroom was when they played Starvation, which was the Ethiopian famine song done by Madness and members of UB40 and all that lot. Mm. 
And um, at the end, Max Headroom's just standing stock still looking, like he was disgusted by humanity, and then just snaps his head and looks away, and then it fades down. And that, that was good. <laughs> but that was it for me. Well, yeah. I mean, look, look, in terms of weird things that you'd see on Channel 4 late at night, I've got far more affection for, I don't know, um, the Romeo cleaners from Eurotrash than that from Max mm. Headroom, you know? Um, I mean, this track, actually, this Art of Noise track, isn't so bad. It, it, it's kind of looking back like everything is, but not to the 60s, actually. This has a big late 70s kind of Talking Heads vibe to it, um, mm. that kind of Fela Kuti influence uh, running through it. So the track's okay, but I mm. would have just been aggravated by Max by this point, certainly. Um, yeah. And yeah, it was. Yeah, because it, I mean, Channel 4, I've got loads of fond memories of very early Channel 4, but there, there was a lot of London media wankery going on. And and to my mind, this is this is one of them. This is the prime example. Yeah, well, I, to me, Max Edroom was just one of those American yeah. things mm. served up to us, you know, without explanation. Yeah in the 80s, which I never swallowed, you know, like American football and varsity jackets. I loved American football. (laughs) Still do. Yeah, I know. But just, you know, like the breakfast club. I mean, I just thought it was some NTSC thing (laughs) with no cultural relevance to me, you know, and lacking the mystery or inherent qualities to seem interesting or exotic, or, or, or funny. Mm. And I think I may be slightly resented his sudden presence everywhere. Yeah. You know, like satirising TV conventions which weren't in place here. Yeah. While simultaneously acting like he was better than you. Mm. Yeah, the yeah. pseudo-computerised cunt. You know, I mean, aside <laughs> from anything else, I, just, I don't like the bastard's horrible face. You mm. know what I mean? He's got that sort of... Smug look, and he looks like one of those six foot four inch American guys called like Brad Svedberg. You know, he's like, oh, I'm Swedish German. He's like, Yeah, well, fuck your mum. You know what I mean? It's like, I can't. The only time I want to see Max Edroom is bursting into a broadcast of Doctor Who, yes, swigging Pepsi and being spanked on the ass with a fly swatter. Yes. Um, you know, not not on a, a tossed off art of noise track. Have you seen which... that, Neil? No, I don't think yeah. I have. Some scamps in America, in Chicago, they cut into, uh, they jammed a signal or whatever. And uh, yeah, one of them put on a Max Headroom mask and uh, the other one wobbled some corrugated iron behind him and wanged on for a bit. And then it cut to his bare arse being hit with a fly swatter. Oh, I do love a good signal hijacking. Mm. Yeah, right in the middle of Doctor Who horror of Fang Rock. <laughs> you know, being watched by about 10 people. But yeah, it was great. <laughs> but it, it's frustrating uh, listening to this because with the art of noise, it's not like there's no talent there. No. And even though it's 1986, there's no need to keep the break on like this and be wry and slightly smug, mm. you know. Uh, and not bother with tension or release or trying to be anything more than a musical representation of a 30-something face with one raised eyebrow, mm. you know. It's like, it's like the Art of Noise and Max Headroom kind of made for each other. Yes. It's, and it's it's what I've never liked about the Art of Noise. They thought they were just a little bit smarter, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe they were, but you have to wear it lightly. Yeah which they really, really didn't. Mm. You've got the novelty of those first 
few Art and Noise singles where it's all like dislocated vocal mm-hmm. samples yeah. and that Fairlight Orchestra stab, which mm. is like the the Wilhelm scream of mid eighties <laughs> pop, you know. Um, but then it just tailed off to like years of stuff like this, yeah. and it's incredibly hard to imagine anybody giving a shit about it because it doesn't move you, it doesn't excite you. No. Um, on any primitive level, it doesn't stimulate the brain, and the actual sound of it is not particularly beautiful no. or atmospheric or exciting. It's just an expensively made, useless thing. Mm. You know, it's like the eighties that I never understood. You yeah. know, you can't really tell what it is or what it's meant to be, and you know, I mean that's good and bad. It's good because it's always better to have something inexplicable than something predictable, but bad because in practice, there's a lot of very predictable things that are much better than this. (laughs) It's a bit decent of Top of the Pops actually wanting this on and putting it on because, you know, this is like Top of the Pops having A. Show Borough on in 1973 or Roy North in 1981. You know, this is the presenter of a rival pop show that's usually broadcast on the same night as Top of the Pops is. Mm. Yeah, that is a bit odd, isn't it? You would have thought that would exclude him. And it should have been fucking Roy North. <laughs> yeah. That would have been brilliant. Uh, I, if you've not seen it, I'm sure you have. I direct all the pop craze youngsters towards the video playlist where Roy North is doing his cover version of Swords of a Thousand Men by <laughs> Temple Tudor in a kind of jacket that a maths teacher would wear to go out to the disco yeah, in. Yeah. Oh, it's glorious. His songs at the start of Get It Together were yes. always the only response is I say Mr. Roy you're a tuneless <laughs> cunt <laughs> anything else to say about this yeah I hate this record everything about this record the aesthetics of it and the spirit of it it makes me think it takes me back to sitting watching the late show on BBC two you know that yeah smug arts magazine there's had a lot mm. of good stuff on it but was never a good thing in itself. It was just the domain of those sour-mouthed blokes in specs and red jackets, you know, bringing the the cold aesthetics of the posh ad agency to television Mm. arts coverage. And they were always the sort of people who thought that the best rock and roll was the least rock and roll rock and roll. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like like Groucho Club non-jokers. The sort of people who give critics a bad name, (laughs) i.e. the name Critics. (laughs) That was them. And I'll tell you what's better than fucking Paranoimia by The Art of Noise and Max Headroom, Pie Mania by Claire Sinclair and the Pie Men. Um, (laughs) And if if anybody doesn't know, if if there is anybody listening who by some chance doesn't know what I'm I'm talking about, there's a game called Pie Mania for the ZX Spectrum in the early 80s, and it was like a freaky text adventure Mm -hmm. game, which was very big at the time. And when you bought the game, on cassette, of course, as computer games were at the time, uh, on the other side of the tape, there was a song on it called Pie Mania, (laughs) credited to Claire Sinclair and the Pie Men, uh, which was obviously done in someone's bedroom, on an old four track and a Cassio Just like the game was. Yeah, and a a load of sounds and uh, snippets of dialogue. I believe it's actually got Ian Jury on it as well, which is at least unexpected. I think he might have known. Because 
everyone's going, is that Ian Jury's voice? Is that Ian Jury? No, it can't be. And then Ian Jury turned up on uh, one of the later games by the same company doing a voiceover, right. suggesting, actually, yes, that was Ian Jury on the record. And um, frankly, it's a lesson to the art of noise in how to make a piece of abstract electronic music sound like a tiny adventure in a baffling world. Um, and all for 75p. You know, rather than a a ruinously expensive trip up somebody else's backside, (laughs) which is basically what this is. So the following week, Paranormia jumped up 12 places again to number 14. And a week later, it got to number 12, its highest position. There was a Max Headroom follow-up, Merry Christmas, Santa Claus, you're a lovely guy, but it failed to chart. Meanwhile, the Art of Noises follow-up, Legacy, only got to number 95 in November and they'd have to wait until 1988 for their next hit, Kiss with Tom Jones, which got to number five in November of that year. I fucking hate that. Uh, That is one of my least favourite records of all time. The Art of Noise would have two stabs at a maxless paranoia, firstly in 1989 with a Ben Lee Bronze remix, and then a Carl Cox one in 1992. As for Max, he got binned off by the American TV companies in September of 1987, making a brief comeback over here 20 years later to promote Channel 4 switching to digital. And that, pop craze youngsters, closes the book on this episode of Top of the Pops. It would be nearly four years before they let another woman present Top of the Pops on her own, Anthea Turner in February of 1990, and that was followed by Jackie Brambles in March of that year, and then Claire Sturgis in September of 1994. But by the mid-90s, a slew of women were allowed in. You ready for this, chaps? Yeah. Nana Cherry. Cool. Kylie Minogue. Cool. Wigfield. Cool. Lisa Ianson. Mm-hmm. Michelle Gale, <laughs> Brenda Gilhooley as Gale Tuesday. Oh, it's true, though. It? Page three girls are thick. Mm. What a funny act that was. <laughs> Louise Redknapp. <laughs> In her eternal days, I wonder. Lulu. Oh, Jesus. Justine Frischman. Ah, Brett Pop. Louise Wenner. Frank Tory. Beer Van Beers. Hey. Skin. Right. Mm. Julia Carling. Huh. Twice. <laughs> well, of course. Gina G. All right. Rona Cameron. <sighs> Joe Wyler. <sighs> For fuck's sake. Zoe Ball. Likewise. Danny Minogue. <laughs> Kathy Dennis. Hey. Jane Middlemiss. <sighs> Mary Ann Hobbs. Right. Denise Van Alton. Sarah Kaywood. She took my gossip editor job off me. Kate Thornton. Katie Hill. Gail Porter. Emma Ledden, Sarah Cox, Josie Darbe, Sophie Ellis-Bexter, Lisa Snowden, Mel B, Lisa Bonin, and Fern Cotton. Oh, man. That just basically sounds like a list of loaded magazine front cover stars. Yes. In that period. There was a 10-week run in mid-1997 where all the presenters were women. But Janice did it first, and yeah. Janice did it best. The, the other female DJs in the 80s, um, you know... Ranking I'm, Miss P, where's she? 
well, I think, you know, serious DJs, weren't they? And, and Annie Nightingale mm. as well. And, and kind of, yeah. they, they probably just considered it a little bit beneath them. But I wonder whether Ranking Miss P was even asked. No, Doubt of course it. she wasn't. You know, and we have to wait until Skin and um, Michelle Gale for a black woman to present. Mm. It's a very telling list. That It's a, ver- it's a very sort of, it, it, it's a list of, yeah, it, it, it does remind me of being part of the music press in the 90s in a big, big way. Mm. And not just because, yeah. Sarah Kay would actually she did my job way better than I did um, mm. she actually gave a fuck about parties in London so she's actually <laughs> a pretty good gossip editor a little bit easier uh, on the eye as well Neil if you don't mind <laughs> you on the cover of Loaded with your hand down your knickers that didn't sell <laughs> shit that issue <laughs> so moving away very quickly from that image what's on telly afterwards well BBC One kicks on with EastEnders, where the police make inquiries into the burglary of the surgery, and Sue finds out that she isn't pregnant. What twinkle. That's followed by Graham Gordon and some other doctors who weren't in the goodies looking at coughing and breathing in body matters. After Les and Dustin's laughter show with special guest Russell Harter, it's the nine o'clock news. Then Alf Garnet uses his next door neighbour's phone to call Rita in Liverpool in sickness and in health. That's followed by highlights from Wimbledon, and they finish off the night with Barry Manilow in Japan. Ooh. BBC Two eventually gets round to the first citizen a documentary about the Mayor of Bradford, who's the first Asian Lord Mayor in the country, followed by Paul Heine and Cathy Rochford in the travel show, and then Maddie conspires to fuck over the accountant who made her bankrupt, while Bruce Willis stares in the back, looking at the camera and raising his eyebrow again in moonlighting. <laughs> After the short film, Mr Preble gets rid of his wife, they finish off with news night, highlights from the cricket, and a bit of open uni. University. ITV has just started the Richard O'Sullivan single dad com Me and My Girl, and that's followed by Falcon Crest. Then it's Troubles and Strife, the sitcom about a dishy young vicar and all the housewives of the area who want to give him a scene to. After that, TVI looks at the Church of England's current mither about female priests. Then it's news at 10, regional news in your area, a regional politics in your area show. Then it's highlights from the Royal Show and close down at five past midnight. I went to the Royal Show of 1986. Oh! And? (laughs) Nothing else to report. (laughs) Why? It's not the kind of thing I'd expect a young Taylor Parks to be... um, up for? No, I'm I'm thinking maybe I didn't. I'm thinking, am I thinking of something else? Wait a minute, else? the Royal Show, what is that again? Remind me. Yeah, remind me so I'll know if I'm thinking of something. It, the Royal Agricultural Show. Yeah, I think it was more like a sort of a, like a three counties yeah. fair. Yes, that's exactly what it and is. And it's, it's out, actually, it was always show. out near us, actually, near Cov. It was in our kind of mm. Arden Mercia area. I believe, actually, 86 mm. was the year in which my wife got a foot trod on by a shire horse. Um, oh, she remembers that well, not fondly, obviously. <laughs> she didn't hold it against horses afterwards, but uh, ships in the night, Taylor. Maybe I was there as well. I'm pretty sure I went there with the school and I'd just got uptight the Velvet Underground story out of the library <laughs> and I had that with me and I was reading that rather than looking at anything. Channel 4 is still running Channel 4 News then it's the final episode of Too Hot to Handle where William Woolard looks at nuclear power and asks if radiation is really all that 
bad that this is three months after fucking Chernobyl. After Hannah Gordon shows you how to keep your plants alive while you're on holiday in Gardener's Corner, it's the first episode of the drama series What If It's Raining? about a divorced couple bringing a baby up. And they round off with The Wobblies, a documentary film about the industrial workers of the World Union and today's highlights from the House of Lords. 86 is a definite year where a, a very, very recurrent moment for me is is staying up after nine for the first kind of time in my mm. life in terms of watching telly with my parents that was post-Watershed. And, and, you know, that, that hot, burning shame of <laughs> watching something <laughs> a bit saucy with my parents. So it's definitely the year Vulcan of... Crust. It's definitely the year of, um, you know, Life and Love is a She-Devil. And also um, Singing Detective yeah. is this year as well, I think. Um, yes. Yeah. Many embarrassing mm. moments, but mind-blowing moments as well, you know. So, dear boys... What are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? Sly Fox being ace. Mm. Um, that eight and a half record being rubbish. Mm. And possibly in private with very, very close friends. Um, uh, talking about the fact that I slightly fancied Janice Long. <laughs> I think in real life, by this point, we were so already such grizzled veterans at Top of the Tops <laughs> that we were left untouched by creepy ghost children from the 1920s and you know the whole sam fox phenomenon so probably at 14 it would have been the house mark yes and Mm. how enthusiastically the audience responded to this real music yeah proper instruments yeah and oh what could be achieved if only those poor people were given the chance to hear the shop assistant (laughs) and, and big flame you know, revolution by Christmas. Because it's it's only a matter of what's dropped into that row of gaping mouths held open obediently uh, for spoon feeding. Because everyone's a thick, remote-controlled cunt mm. with no agency, no valid thoughts of their yeah. own, apart from me. Yes. And possibly you, I'm not sure yet. <laughs> what's your opinion of weedy-sounding indie music? <laughs> and if the answer is bad... All I have to say to you is false consciousness. Ooh. What are we buying on Saturday? Sly Fox. I think that might be all as far as my current self is concerned. Mm. I mean, this episode is definitely more fun and more interesting to talk about than watch. <laughs> I did buy Sly Fox on 12. I think um, I'll probably buy House Ooh. Martins as well. You didn't buy the Clarissa 12-inch Jack mix. <laughs> <laughs> and what does this episode tell us about July of 1986? It's actually uh, it, it's actually really revealing, this episode, of that shift that so mm. many of us felt away from the charts into the past. But also that even in a period where pop seemed to be passing out of the hands of sort of big bands and scenes and into the hands of a sort of general committee of what pop should sound like there were still thrills to be had but it's thin pickings isn't it i i think that's the main Mm. theme that emerges it's not as if there's dozens of great records in this chart that i wish had been on you know it it, Mm. it's not like i'm really agonized over loads of songs that could have been on so inevitably as a teenager you know as someone seeking an identity you start looking elsewhere whether that's the library or underground black pop again um you know but certainly it tells us about 86 it uh, as far as i'm concerned it tells me absolutely nothing about any of the music that i'm going to get into as 87 88 89 happens that's a different world not remotely suggested by this Mm. yeah 
what I take from this is a sense of everything's happening at once, but by everything, I mean basically nothing Mm. or, you know, nothing good. I think what with charts like this and my romantic calamities, um, I think 1986 was probably my least favourite year of the 80s Mm. while it was happening. Mm. And whatever else this episode tells us about 1986, it doesn't tell me that I was wrong. (laughs) And that brings us to the end of this episode of Chart Music. All that remains for me to do now is the usual promotional flange, www.chart-music.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusic. Reach out to us on Twitter at chartmusictotp, money down the g-string, patreon.com slash chartmusic. Thank you, Neil Kulkarne. Thanks a lot, Al. Go fuck yourself, Taylor Parks. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, sweet memories. My name's Al Needham. Please don't touch your fan air. <laughs> <laughs> Sharp music. Great big owl.com. I'd like Sid to fix it for you to see your favourite pop group. And what group would you like to see, boys and girls? The village people. And what would you like to hear them singing? In the Navy. Join your fellow man in the Navy. Be a Larry Grayson fan in the Navy. Weed beans out of a can in the Navy. In the Navy. In the Navy. You will sail the seven seas in the Navy. You can have fish chip by and feed in the Navy. I will give your hand a squeeze in the Navy. In the Navy. We want you, we want you, we want you as new recruits. We want you, we want you, we want you as new recruits. Hello, my darlings, it's me, Anna Man, actress, singer, welder, gotta have a backup. I've been in everything, my darlings, and I've been cut from most things. However, I will not be cut from one thing, and that is my own podcast, Talking to Actors with Anna Man, where I meet those rarest of creatures, the actors. That's Talking to Actors on The Great Big Owl.